Welcome to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. We're your hosts, Natalie Kavorik and Tara Vanderdeesen, and together we bring you our professional farming opinions on a mix of entertainment, facts, and trending news articles in the ag and food space. We're ag like you've never seen or heard it before. Welcome to episode 72 of Discover Ag. I did not blow away. I'm still here. I know. I've been meaning to check on you. I cannot believe your guys' windstorms. Oh my gosh, we I've had a bunch of people message me from like Arizona all the way to Kansas about how crazy like it's not just us. It's everywhere. But yesterday we had um, wind speeds over 90 miles an hour. It was nuts. We have had I have battled being from Montana and living in Nebraska. I've battled my fair share of windstorms. And I feel like it's I always say it's the one um, weather that I feel like gives me the most anxiety. Like I would rather deal with lots of snow, lots of rain, like I mean, I don't know if I'd rather deal with like a long-term intense drought, but I just, I guess from like the cute standpoint, wind really affects me like emotionally, physically, like I get really anxious in wind. It was definitely affecting the girls. Um, I mean, wind, like, I mean, it's a natural part of life on the high plains, but this was the, I think this was the worst I've ever seen. And I just kept thinking like, there, like a window is going to bust in. Like Daniel said, we had a shade on the dairy. It literally just picked the entire shade up out of the ground. Like it didn't just like blow the tin off. The entire structure came out of the ground and just like flew through the air. Is no yeah, so so scary too. Well, I hope you guys get relief soon. I know. I hope so for everybody. Um. So for today, we have some exciting news. Today's episode is brought to you by Case IH. To the men and women at Case IH, farming is a way of life, a life they live every day on millions of acres across North America. Get to know the farmers who work at Case IH and see how they bring that perspective into everything Case IH does. Visit builtbyfarmers.com to see their stories and even share your own. Built by Farmers. Case IH, a proud sponsor of the Discover Ag podcast. I know we're so excited to bring them on. Case is actually going to be a longer term partnership for us. So you guys will be hearing them in the episodes to come. And we really could not be more excited to partner um, with such a reputable brand. I know we're Case people um, and Tara, you are too. So thank you, Case. All right. Are we ready to dive into some exciting things? Yeah, I want to talk actually about you had posted last week sometime about Starbucks and olive oil. And I want to hear more about that. Yeah, so I feel like this one is it's like kind of a hot topic. I feel like not everyone's like some people are really happy about it and some are excited to like try it. And some people are really not okay about it. So why Starbucks? Why is, do you think it's a hot topic? I had heard nothing about like, it until you posted it on the stories. Really? Oh my yeah. gosh. Maybe we're following like very different accounts. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Let me tell a little bit. Let me just give a little bit of background. So Starbucks is going to start putting olive oil in some of their drinks. It's like going to be a specialty line of coffee. And it's actually starting in Italy right now. But it'll move to Southern California in the spring. Like I'm like not surprised by that at all. And then it'll start moving to other countries after that with like Japan in the first lineup and then like a few others. And then they'll see about like rolling it out nationwide. So our only chance to try it is to fly to Italy or head back to Southern California. So I mean, if that's what we have to do to bring the news of what it tastes like to the Discover community, the discos, I suppose we can take a trip to Italy. 
then we might just have to do it. So I think the reason I think it's a hot topic is I don't know if you've been following like the whole like seed oil not being good for you thing. Have you? I literally just listened to a podcast this morning about seed oils. Yeah. Yeah. And so I feel like that is it's like the new. I don't know thing that people are like it's the new ingredient that people are really like jumping on and saying it's bad for you and so people that are kind of on that bandwagon were like oh look another way like seed oils trying to like infiltrate our lives like very dramatic things but olive oil is one of the seed oils that for anyone who is like pro or con it olive oil ends up on the side where they're like that's a safe to consume you should have in your diet like uh, coconut oil olive oil um and one other that I can't think of Yeah. And so I, yeah, I think I've just been like following that debate kind of. And so like, I just saw people who were like excited to try it. It kind of reminds me of like the butter and coffee Mm -hmm. craze. Like what was that? that The two things, the, yeah. And that's the two things that like came to mind for me, um, is that they were talking about, I guess like essentially it's like putting a fat in your coffee. And I was like, well, I don't know. People, use, it's not like new or exciting. And the other thing was like, all, uh, I don't know. Have you ever heard of oil pulling? No. So that was like a trend I would say, like a health trend, I'd say, like, I don't know, maybe like seven, 10 years ago. And I think people probably still do it now, but I feel like it was like the hot thing then was to oil pull. And a lot of people did that with coconut oil and you like switched it around in your mouth and it was supposed to help with like dental hygiene and a bunch of things. But you actually didn't swallow that at the end of it. Like you took the tablespoon, you switched it around and then you expectorated it. And so when they were like, this is meant to like, you take, it's basically like a shot of oil. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Cause I feel like I just equate oil with the pulling where like you spit it out, you don't consume it. Wait, can we go back? What word did you just say? Expectorate. (laughs) I've never heard that word in my entire life. I use it all the time. They say it in medical a lot, like pharmacy. That's why. (laughs) The fact that you just said I use it a lot. like (laughs) Swish and spit. Swish and spit. (laughs) I'm going to try to use that in a sentence today with like Daniel or something. and Just see how he reacts. Oh, I feel like the most alarming thing for me out of that whole, um, like the Instagram post, honestly, was that Milan has a Starbucks. I'm like, isn't European, like Europe supposed to be like hoity-toity about that? Like, why would they touch our American Starbucks filth? I like couldn't, I was shocked that it was like rolling out in Milan of all places, I think. But do you know know the history of Starbucks? I thought it was started in Seattle. It was, but it was because the owner went to Italy and was like, why can't we have like espresso cafes like they do in Italy where people just gather and hang out? And so he like created the first Starbucks after like his favorite espresso cafe in Italy. And so it has like deep ties to Italy, apparently. Gotcha. Okay. That makes a little bit more sense. But still, I, I don't know. It always shocks me like when we I travel somewhere else and I see like a McDonald's or like something I think of like very like a Starbucks, something I think of very American. And then you see it like integrated into like other global places is always like I'll never forget when I saw a McDonald's in Prague and it was like the cutest McDonald's. It was like pink and it was um, I don't know. It was so cute. Or maybe it was Lisbon. I can't remember. But I was just like for one so shocked that there was McDonald's and then two like seeing the European twist on it. I will second that. Daniel and I went to a McDonald's in Tokyo and it was literally, we were starving. We needed to eat. We had flown in like on a typhoon and we saw McDonald's and it was so cool. And it was nice because it was all in pictures. So you could just like point and like there, we didn't need to be able to communicate. <laughs> You're like, uh, burger, point. <laughs> like, 
feed we me. We were really <laughs> struggling that morning. And it was really cool to see their take on like different things. And even within the United States, like we, we can get green chili at our McDonald's and I don't think anywhere else in the country can. No, so definitely not. I would be like, hold the green chilies if that was in a Nebraska one. Speaking of global things, though, have you and Dan talked at all about like the mad cow disease? Has that entered your house? I haven't talked to him about it, but I was at a conference last week um, for the board that I'm on now, DMI, and we talked about it. I talked about it with like the exports guy. Oh, what do you have to say? I'd be curious to hear. Can you relay he that information said, or not? Yeah, I can. I I can divulge that information. Um, okay. He said that he didn't think it was going to be a big deal. He said that it happened like the actual date of the cow was like kind of a while ago. And he thinks like everyone, I don't know, like it kind of like is in the news right now, but it won't be like necessarily. I don't know. He just he made it sound like it wasn't like it was it was um, found on like before it exported. So it was contained to Brazil. I don't know. Yeah. So when I was reading about it, um, I did read that it's like the atypical form as well. And so I think that plays a role in like not as severe or like, you know, like people being um, as nervous about it. Um, and when I was talking to Luke about it, he said that he had, I don't know if he had like read or was informed or where his, you know, information came from, but like currently China halted like imports from Brazil. Yep. Um, but he heard that they were going to lift that and only do it to like the certain area. Um, and so I, you're right. I think it's already like kind of trending downward as far as concern, but, um, to the point you said that like the date, um, isn't immediate. That's what I actually found really interesting when I was reading about it is a lot of people were calling into question about how Brazil, they have delayed, I guess, like, um, reporting. And I feel like that's actually the bigger issue is like, are they're taking months and like, one was even saying like years um, to report things and cases and keep updated. And like that, not cool, Brazil, not cool. So that was the, when I was kind of like looking into this more, that was actually what I saw too. And it was like that it happens more than maybe we realize and like doesn't even make the news. Like I was like, why did this one end up making the news? It kind of surprised me because I feel like in like, I don't, it just seems like they're kind of, cavalier about it i don't know I, maybe that's not true but it just it doesn't seem like there's like super great protocols in place yeah i don't think so um one get- thing i want to get off my chest before we move on <laughs> it's a little from left field you guys but i feel like you guys are used to that from me in the podcast now but last night um we were making dinner and i put on i decided to put on an old dolly album dolly parton and i just have to say i feel like dolly really got robbed she did you know she is the original creator of and i will always love you no yes so the whitney houston is actually a cover oh yes dolly parton did it first it was like one of her it was in the night i think like 74 did she write it yeah her and i'm pretty sure she co-wrote it with the guy um why can i not think of his name um ugh, it's gonna come to me later in the podcast episode um but i'm pretty sure they co-wrote it um, it was on her same Jolene album. Oh, wow. So probably got like over overshadowed by that one, maybe. Well, and Whitney Houston. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it might've been really big until Whitney did it. And I just, I don't know. Every time I hear Dolly sing it, I've heard it before. And, but it came up again last night when I like had the playlist on and I was like, that's right. She like, I always forget, even though I know Dolly was the 
original writer of it, I just always associate it. And I feel like everyone associates it with Whitney Houston and the bodyguard. And I just feel like Dolly got robbed. Sure. So I just, Uh, my kids love, my kids love Dolly Parton because they, we did the imagination library. So Dolly sent them a book once a month when they were little. Did you, have you done that with your kids? It's no, it's so cute. Yeah. You have, I mean, we do wild west book kids club. So maybe my kids will love Becky as much as they love Dolly. (laughs) (laughs) We got our uh, subscription for Wild West Books Club this week, and the girls were ecstatic as well. It's so fun. Anyone listening who is interested in that, you should look into it. It's a book club that you get once a month, or you can get it like one time or quarterly, whatever you want set up. And it's all Western, like agriculture, rodeo kind of related. Jax loves it, and I know Rue will eventually love it too. Yeah. All right. Should we jump into the meat of the episode now that I've given Dolly her shout out? Yeah, because it was like a happening week in news. I feel like we had to really like narrow it down. Like I think we could have picked three other like amazing articles. Like we picked three of our favorites, but it was like we were sitting on the phone for a while being like, which three are we going to cover? Because there was a lot happening. I love the ones we picked too. Me too. So yes, let's go. Okay, so this week's top three trending topics in the ag and food space that you guys need to know are one, the USDA can't stop organic food fraud. Mm, I've got, I actually spoke with some organic farmers over the weekend to kind of uh, research for this one and got some perspective. Look at you putting in the hard work. Yeah. Doing the research for people. The second one is how climate change is a hidden cause for inflation and price increases. I feel like this one's very timely with what our windstorm of yesterday and today. Like I kind (laughs) of, we did not plan that, but I, when I was like researching for this one, I was like, wow, I am, it's just giving dust bowl big time right now. Giving dust bowl. (laughs) That is so funny. Okay. And the third one is soy. This is the one you're going to have that people just wait to hear what Tara has to say about this one. Soy and almond drinks can now be called milk. FDA says. I... I don't even know if I want to oh. give anything here yet. I like I want to <laughs> save it. Actually, my response might surprise people. Oh, save it. I, that is not true. I All right, we'll see what you have to say, I guess. <laughs> but before we dive into the meat of the episode, we want to remind you guys as we do every episode that we have a giveaway to say thank you for listening to the Discover podcast. All you have to do to be entered is share our podcast to your social channels um, or leave us a review. And then at the end of the month, that every single month, we pick one person and we send them a goodie bag to say thank you. Um, And I'll have to say, we got called out this week um, in our Discover Stories because last week we gave a shout out to our New Zealand followers for making us global. And the Aussies came after us. They were like, we are here Oh, I saw that. Yes. And so I'm giving our official Australian shout out to all of our Aussies, actually. Um, big fan. Luke and I want to come down and see your guys' agriculture and experience it. Um, and I'm working with Ringer's Western Wear, which is an um, Australian brand. So my heart goes out to the Aussies. Feel connected. Sorry we did not give you your shout out last week with New Zealand. Uh, I also today have my down to earth earrings on from one of our, um, custom makers that handcrafts jewelry. Um, and we've been talking with her about spicing up maybe our gift, like our giveaway boxes. So I know they're so cute. Tell us, um, you got yours before me. You always do Nebraska mail. Like what are we at the pony (laughs) express still? I think so. Um, One (laughs) other like bit of housekeeping that I think is really exciting is we are starting a monthly newsletter for Discover Ag. Uh, So if you want to kind of follow along with the podcast a little bit more, I feel like 
at least like once an episode, we're always like, we need to follow this. Like we need to see where this story goes. And we're actually going to be bringing that to a newsletter. Again, it's just once a month. And we'll be following some of the stories that we mentioned on the podcast, as well as bringing you some of um, our favorite things like outside of agriculture. So some of our favorite things we might be listening to, um, books that we might be listening to, podcasts, things we might be buying, like things we just absolutely love. Um, Maybe some research that we've been doing or different papers. Uh, So if you want to sign up for that newsletter, there will be a link in the show notes. And so I hope you guys will sign up and we'll be kicking that off really soon. All right, let's dive into the top three industry news pieces you guys need to know this week. First up, we have USDA moves to stop organic food fraud finally. The USDA has finally finished a long-awaited rule that will help clean up fraud in the organic food sector. This rule, put together by the USDA's Agriculture Marketing Service, or AMS, is urgently needed giving widespread fraud that has been reported in the organics industry. The level of deception has reached epidemic portions. A USDA study found that 40% of all organic foods sold in the U.S. tested positive for prohibited pesticides. The rule takes a number of positive steps that, if properly implemented, will help restore some consumer confidence in the organics industry. I feel like what, what I forget which sentence you said, but like it's crazy. People went to jail, like millions of dollars of fraud. It kind of is reminding me a little bit of Ghost Herd, which is actually going to be we're, we're recommending that as part of our newsletter coming up. Um, it's a podcast, but it kind of was reminding me of that, like massive, massive fraud, millions of dollars. Like this is a big deal. So I was under the organic rock. <laughs> I had no oh. idea. <laughs> I actually posted the article um, to Twitter last night and was like, because uh, I could not stop reading. I just found it so fascinating. And someone commented and dropped in reply. I was like, yeah, nothing new. And like you said, they dropped in an article that was like $40 million lawsuit back in like 2018. I was like, okay, well, I'm glad I am finally being brought up to date. But I think I'm, I think why I'm most shocked by it is because I feel like consumers associate the organic label with the most trust. Like all the time we hear in the news, like buy organic, shop organic, organic safe. You want to put organic. And I feel like that's the one blind label that, or one label that consumers blindly follow and choose to feel safe is like, Oh, organic. And then come to find out it's like laced and fraud. I actually disagree with you. I feel like I hear a lot of conversation from people being like, well, organic, like there's fraud. It's not even real, especially if a lot of it isn't around imports. Like if things are being imported and then get the USDA like stamp of approval, it's just really hard to regulate what's happening in other countries and if they're following like our protocol. But do you think that's people within the industry that are saying that narrative or you think that's the average shopper that's like springing those up? I think it's not the average shopper. I think it is the more informed, like food conscious, like label conscious shopper. So not necessarily an ag, but just if you're like really yeah. into the health and wellness space, there is more conversation around it. So I, I feel like now is probably a good time to say it. Like my brother is an organic farmer. So I actually feel like I like not have firsthand knowledge, but I mean, I hear what's going on from him, what they like go through. I remember when he transitioned to organic, the amount of paperwork, like his organic notebooks that he has to like keep are just, I mean, it's crazy the amount of paperwork. And so one of the things that like, anytime I've talked with organic farmers, they're like, there's just, they like doubt that other countries are going to that extent, like extensive amount of paper, you know, paperwork, record keeping as our U.S. farmers are. So a little bit more about this. Um, This rule is dubbed the Strengthening Organic Enforcement. It's set to take effect next month, so March, um, with enforcement delayed until next year. 
it's actually the largest rule making since the National Organic Program went into effect, which I think is really crazy. Um, the rule is almost 300 pages long, and it has a lot of different changes on how to basically, I don't know, make the how the organic supply chain operates different. I think one of the main things, at least that I read, that they're focusing on is um, reducing the entities that operate in the organic supply chain that don't currently have organic certification. So it sounds like there's like a lot of middlemen and just people that don't have to be like regulated or certified. And I think they're working on making all of them get certified. Yeah. And then it, a lot of what I saw was about the importing of grains being an issue. Um, A lot of our, like a majority of our organic grains are imported. And then one of the issues is the shipping containers don't have to be labeled as organic. They like can be in anything. And so this rule is going to be cracking down on that. Like if it is an organic grain, it needs to be in a shipping container that says organic so that Mm -hmm. they think that will reduce the amount of like fraud of like, oh no, like shipping container A is organic and shipping container B isn't like when you can't tell any difference between them. Um, it kind of made me wonder why we're not growing more organic grain here, especially because of like the market, like how high the prices are for organic. I don't it, like. Yeah. Uh, so I originally wasn't, I guess, brought out of my organic rock, <laughs> organic fraud rock <laughs> when I was listening <laughs> to a podcast and on it, they were saying that 80% of all of our organic grain is imported. We only grow 20%, mm-hmm. which That is crazy. I think, again, going back to like sometimes the mindset we have, I feel like, again, and you'll maybe disagree with me, but I feel like people, when you see those labels that are like organic, natural, like you feel like it's you're shopping local, it's home, you know, like, again, it's like that safe thing. And only 20% of it is. It's like 80% of it we're importing from places like Turkey, Istanbul. I mean, it's coming from all over. It's crazy. And a lot of our organic produce is coming out of Mexico, like a majority, a ton of organic produce, because obviously a lot of our produce comes from Mexico anyway. And so a lot of it is organic. And this is another conversation I had with a different organic farmer that was just like, again, like there's again, there's no way that they're like all that we're all being held to the same standards. And so it's just really unfair. And I hate using the word unfair because like I know things are not fair. But like if you're producing things organic in the United States, your cost of production are so much higher. And if like fraudulent organic produce is being shipped in, it just undermines like all of your trust, all of that value that you are bringing, like everything. So another thing I thought was interesting that I was reading about was basically that the USDA has been aware of this for quite some time and they're just now finally acting on it, (laughs) which one I think is like an interesting but not like surprising fact. Yeah, disappointing, um, but not surprising. So basically one of the articles I read summed it up by saying, because essentially what they're doing to combat this then is the USDA is getting more involved, right? And so they were saying that they wish that wasn't what was coming out of it, that they were like wishing you could have more like state regulation and just like different than like the USDA cracking down. And I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about that because I feel like you and I talk all the time about like we how we have USDA and FDA regulation. Um And I just I thought it was interesting that they're like, I'm not sure that's like my favorite solution to this problem. So as you're saying that, it made me like think of something kind of related. And um, like for green chili, we have like a special region in New Mexico that's called Hatch. And so it's Hatch green chili and they've marketed themselves really well. And you have to be like in that county in order for your green chili to be regulated or like labeled as Hatch. 
And I will say like they have built such consumer trust on that and it literally has to be grown in that region. It's kind of a bummer if you are outside of New Mexico, like outside of Hatch, but in New Mexico growing green chili because you don't (laughs) get that label. But it is like going back to like the state. I wonder if there would be some value like lettuce that's grown in California. So it would be like California organics. I think Mm -hmm. there would probably be a massive amount of confusion and like difficult too. But at least then you would know it wouldn't be just like USDA. I don't know. But then if there were imports into California, because, they, you know, like, I don't know. I'm sure it would be yeah. very complicated. But I do wonder if like regionalizing it would make people bring that trust back of like, I know for sure this was grown in, you know, the Salinas Valley or and in I Yuma, for Arizona. Sure that this is actually organic and not laced in yeah. some yeah. of the herbicides and pesticides that it's not supposed to be in. <laughs> Right. So I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, I feel like on my page, I'm not always like the, I don't want to say I'm not the biggest supporter of organic. I'm just an advocate for understanding what the labels mean. Um, But this one, I was like, this is a bummer for organic farmers. Like this needs to be fixed. Like this is definitely an issue. And just, I don't know. I feel like it undermines the entire food system, not just organic that you can't trust what something means. I definitely think it points to a consumer question, like you said, of the entire, um, I mean, maybe organically to begin with, but then I feel like it just seeps into questions about like farming and agriculture, ranching, all of it as a whole, like as an industry, like uh, we kind of talked about this before, like when you say like when one, you know, milk producer gets a black spot on us or one rancher, you know, one packing plant, like whatever it is, um, it like, you know, it inks over to the entire industry. Like it, it, it dims the light for everyone. So the last thing I wanted to mention was, um, there's like a raw milk producer in California and he's like one of the bigger raw milk producers. Um, he actually dropped his organic status because he was doing in-house testing. He, I'm sure he was testing his raw milk before he was like bottling it and stuff. And mm-hmm. so he was also testing the grain he was buying and he was like repeatedly, it was showing up with non-organic pesticides. And so he was like, I'm not paying these inflated prices for this grain that is not even organic. And so mm-hmm. he dropped it and now he is, um, I think his new status is like non-GMO. And he's like told his co- like customers, like I just it wasn't what I was getting was not organic, even though it was labeled. And I'd rather like do it right than have that quote unquote label. And it would, I like would love to know how that has either impacted his business for the worse or for the better, like since dropping that label, like did, did he have enough, you know, consumer trust built up and like a good enough communication with his customers that he was able to convey that message or has it like kind of hurt him? Like, I even know, like, I know there's other products on the shelf that are people I've heard, like Fair Life. Like, why isn't Fair Life organic? And it's like, well, because we're conventional dairies that provide for it. But I would wonder, like, especially with raw milk, if people would be looking for that USDA stamp. I don't know. I feel like my my sum it up thought is food labels. We can't live with them and we can't live without them. <laughs> that is an accurate statement. Oh, all right. Moving on to... The second um, news piece you guys need to know this week, the title is How Climate Change is Making Tampons and Lots of Other Stuff More Expensive. When the Agriculture Department finished its calculations last month, the findings were startling. 2022 was a disaster for upland cotton in Texas, the state where the coarse fiber is primarily grown and then sold around the globe in the form of tampons, cloth diapers, gauze pads, and other products. In the biggest loss on record, Texas farms abandoned 70% 74% of their planted crops, nearly 6 million acres, because of heat and parched soil. 
Tampons are up 13%, cloth diapers 21%, cotton balls 9%, gauze bandages 8%, all well above the country's overall inflation rate of 6.5%. It's an example of how climate change is reshaping the most of daily life in ways that consumers might not realize. So this one obviously like kind of hit close to home because West Texas is cotton producing. And at first I was when I was reading this, I was like, did they just put the word like tampon to make this clickbaity? And I kind of feel like they did. But I also had never thought about the fact that upland cotton goes more towards things like that, like lower. I don't want to say like lower quality, but it is it's not it doesn't need to be it's not being turned into sheets like that's the Pima cotton. Uh, And so this it is these like hygiene products that like a lot of the upland cotton is going towards. Uh, I just, that number, that 74% of cotton fields were abandoned this year is just startling. Yeah. So, um, to your point, um, Upland is the shorter courser and it is in a lot of the cheaper clothes we make, um, more basic household items. And then as we've mentioned, like a lot of the hygiene products and for even more numbers, um, they were in an article I was reading was interviewing a chief executive officer officer for Plains Auto Growers, which represents like a lot of the Texas producers. And he said that for a typical production year, Texas um, will put out four to five million bales. And for 2022, it's expected to only be 1.5 billion bales, which is like a cost of roughly like multi-billions to the economy. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Uh, West Texas is the main source of upland cotton. Yeah, it's the main um, source of upland cotton in the U.S. And this was shocking. It's the third biggest producer of um, worldwide of the cotton. Yes. So that's going to have global effects, not just like regional or national. So as far as like the like that, it was a, the hidden cost of inflation was climate change. Yeah. Kind of like the point of this article. I felt like it was a little bit misleading because overall, so like tampons are up 8%, right? Is that what it said? The national average for inflation in January 2023, which I think that's even like come down from like December 2022, was 6.4%. So I feel like inflation across the board is above, has been above 5% and as high as 8 and others. And one of the things they did touch on in this article, but then didn't really go into detail, is in 2021, we banned imports of cotton from China because of forced labor issues. Mm Mm-hmm. That obviously played a part too. Like it's, yeah. I don't, I feel like they were really trying to hit home and I understand why they were trying to hit home on the climate change thing. I just wish, and actually there was a couple quotes in there from other farmers saying it's more than just the drought that's causing this problem. Like it is a combination. It's a global economy now, global market, and we're having other factors in, affecting this. Yeah. So they, one I was reading listed, like you said, the Chinese ban um, on the Chinese cotton. They also cited um, high fuel costs, logistics of moving materials. So they did like kind of casually mention some of the other compounding factors. I agree with you. I think it was definitely a clickbaity article. I feel like anything that puts climate change in the title, I'm like, okay, what are we clickbaiting for to get like, what's the actual point of your article? But as I read through this, I was not annoyed that like this article was written because I feel like they actually brought up really interesting points that I had not thought about yet. One of which they were talking about um, how cotton is like really unique in a commodity crop sense because it's so concentrated. So West Texas, again, is like one of the main producers for this upland cotton. And if you think about how like corn or soybeans or wheat like it's distributed across like multiple states like different geographical areas so if you experience like a drought or something in one area usually like not always but like you know other areas offset it and I thought it was really interesting to think about cotton in that way of being such a important 
<laughs> crop that really <laughs> is so highly concentrated. Yes. Um, something else that I found interesting was the 50 percent of denim for Wrangler and Lee jeans is U.S. cotton. I was kind of surprised mm-hmm. it was only 50 percent. Oh, I was like happy. I was like, oh, cool, because I wear men's Wranglers all the time. And so I was like, I'm glad I'm like, supporting U.S. cotton. <laughs> okay. I mean, yes, I guess it could be worse, but I just was, <laughs> I don't know. Um, another statistic that I thought was kind of crazy was um, in the last five years, this was according to UC Davis. We love them. Love to see them weighing in. But $1 billion in crop insurance has been paid out to cotton farmers in the last five years. So it was like that conversation was interesting. Like is West Texas are we not going to be like, are we, do we need to move away from growing cotton in West Texas? And I, I like literally understand that that is not that easily said or done as it is said, but it just, it gives like pause with any commodity, like that's been having like a lot of bad years, really bad drought years. Like, are we going to see shifts in where things are grown and things are produced based on what climate is doing? Well, so Yes. One of the articles I was reading, there was a, um, what was he? I think he was an ag economist. And he was saying, he basically summed it up by saying, cause they were calling for like, um, financial aid to the cotton industry. And then they were also talking about like other ways that like maybe through technology or like different things that they could do as producers, like practices to help, you know, like offset or like improve the production or like, you know, help prevent this from happening again or minimize it, I guess, from happening again. Um, but he was like, does it really make sense to do all that? He's like, or should like, will we all just eventually move away? Well, he went as far as saying like move away from cotton into polyester. Um, but to your point of like, is Texas the best place to grow it? Like when we, cause we did our docu-series on cotton our a pilot episode on it. And if there's one thing I feel like I took away from that is how finicky of a plant it is. And that's why we only see it grown in the areas it's grown in. So like to your point of like, okay, is West Texas like with its climate, not the best you know, to like have cotton, it's like West Texas might be the only place that can have cotton. So if we can't figure it out in West Texas, like where, where can't, like we can't grow it here in Nebraska, you know, like where can (laughs) we like even move it to or do it differently? Like if West Texas is like having all of these droughts. Yeah. Cause it's beyond climate. It's like the soil has to be just right. Like there's a lot of factors that have to come into play to grow it. So it's, it's more complicated and just like, okay, well it's too dry now in West Texas. We got to move someplace else. It's like, well, the soil has to be just right someplace else too. Um, I will say this was a New York times article and they actually interviewed a fair amount of farmers. Like I was really happy. Like I was like, thank you. Like it was not just one farmer. There was multiple perspectives. They brought in professors from very like ag based universities. Like sometimes I feel like I'll see an article and it'll be like Harvard university. And I'm like Harvard university person, no offense to them, like does not live in West Texas. Like I loved to see professors who were like in the cotton area actually being interviewed as well as farmers. I just could not stop thinking of like, you got into Harvard law. What? Like it's (laughs) hard. hard. To your point, though, as I was reading, I felt like it was a really well done article. Again, I was like, I'm going to be annoyed by this based off the title. And then as I was reading through it, I was like, this is very interesting article because I'm surprised you have not brought this up yet. Being our water queen that you are. Oh, I have it. It's my last point. Okay, I was going to say the other thing that I thought was really interesting that I pulled out of this that I did a little more research on, but I want to continue doing more research for myself on. And as we mentioned earlier, maybe this is something we'll actually pull into our newsletter. but it talked a lot about the Ogallala aquifer and how we're losing that and how water 
is, you know, part of the problem we're seeing with the cotton growing. Um, And I wouldn't like obviously say it stops at cotton. It's going to go into a lot of other just farming in general, right? Like our, we say it all the time, like water is our finite resource that we need to be paying attention to for the future. Yeah. As two Oklahoma aquifer girlies, yeah, our lives on the Oklahoma Aquifer. Um, I love that. And I'm, for us. <laughs> I love. I love it for you more than me because you're up where the headwaters are, and I'm down here where you can like see it receding. And they had a quote, and I actually like pulled up the quote, major portions of the Ogallala Aquifer should now be considered a non-renewable resource. And it broke. I mean, I knew that that's what it was, but it broke my heart a little bit. I know. But do you, I was like, is that again, I think that was one of the statements I was like, okay, is this shock factor? Like, is this fear or like, are we, um, like what is the actual numbers, the receding rate? Like what's our actual timeline really look like for it? I don't think it was shock factor. If I'm being honest, I think it was, I think it depends where you're at on the Oklahoma aquifer. I think it's really bad in a lot of places, Kansas, Oklahoma, West Texas, Eastern New Mexico, all of us, um, maybe parts of Colorado, even, uh, like Southern, southeastern Colorado. Um, and so I was not, I, w- I was glad they touched on that. Um, and obviously they couldn't probably go into the full detail on this one, but I actually felt like that was the one spot that I was like, it's not shock factor actually. Like we are like yeah. running out of water. So, um, yeah, it's it, like you said, this isn't just cotton. This will affect every single crop. Like when I was a kid, I know my dad used to grow alfalfa and like we don't grow alfalfa anywhere near the dairy anymore. Um, it's going, it has changed what crops we grow and don't grow. And going back to, you mentioned ghost herd earlier, which is something we're putting in the newsletter, but I feel like they, that podcast did a good job of like touching on certain areas because that was by the Columbia Basin. And so it talked about how like um, important that land is. And just, again, I feel like the more awareness Uh, people inside or outside um, of the industry have around like, you know, the future of water and really understanding what that does to farmers and ranchers. um, And thus like our food system, um, I think is like, I'm all for like here for the H2O conversations. Same. But I feel like on that note, we've got to move on to the third one because (laughs) I'm going to have a lot to say. So (laughs) we better go. All right. Our third and final industry news piece you guys need to know this week. Soy, oat, and almond drinks can be called milk, FDA says. Oat, soy, and almond milk drinks can keep the word milk in their names. The Food Drug Administration proposed this week in an effort to end a long-running battle between the powerful dairy industry and the plant-based upstarts that have been changing the way Americans consume cereal and flavor their coffee. Um, we'll end it at that. Can I just start with rolling my eyes big time on the powerful <laughs> dairy industry and plant-based upstarts? Why do people think plant-based upstarts are like these little tiny businesses? They're not. They have like major funding from like anybody from Amazon to Bill Gates to Mark Zuckerberg. Like plant-based things are not like little tiny like mm-hmm. businesses. Yeah, it's, there's a lot I, like, of money in them. I hated that very opening sentence. Um, I think that some history. This has been going on for years. We have been Mm -hmm. fighting this as the dairy industry that milk should only be used for things like goat's milk, cow's milk, sheep's milk, like lactating animals. Um, I also think this is interesting is Europe does not let these, they have to uh, be labeled as non-dairy beverages in Europe. And I feel like the same people in the United States that are like, we should be allowed to use the word milk are the same people who are like, we love Europeans like labeling like standards and that they can't use all these products. And I'm like, you don't get to have it both ways. Like you Mm -hmm. don't like you either want the enforcement of Europe, like, or you like, I don't know. I just, I think that's so 
um, like ironic, I guess, that it seems like it's the same people that want both those things. They want their cake and they want to eat it too. They want their milk and they want to drink it too. Um, yeah. So what I pulled out from this, which I would be interested to hear your opinion, um, and you probably don't know the answer because you're like in a lot of the meetings or like the pushing, I don't know, the policy writing and things like that. But I feel like the articles I were reading came from it at the stance that the FDA okayed this because they believe consumers are not confused, that they don't think that almonds are producing milk. And so that was the reason. Like they're like, consumers aren't confused. They're aware that like, you know, whatever nut it is or whatever form it is, isn't actually does not have a teat. They are not confused. So let them put milk on it. And I feel like I agree with that. I feel like maybe I can safely say that most people are aware of that. Although I'm sure there are some shockers out there that would um, make me eat my words. But um, I feel like that's missing the point. The point is the nutritional because I feel like when you put milk on the label, you're then associating the nutritional value that like almond milk has the same for normal milk, which you of all people are fully aware that it's not. And I feel like that is where FDA completely is missing the point. Like it's not about whether it comes from a teat or not. It's about the fact that it doesn't have the same amount of protein or like and the whole other laundry list of things nutritionally compared. I'm so glad that you brought that up. So yeah, it has been shown, research has shown that consumers for the most part are aware of the fact that like they're wanting a plant-based beverage a lot of times or a plant-based milk because it's not milk actually. So they are fully aware of that. They are not fully aware of the nutritional differences. That study has been done and they, a lot of times, especially the issue I think where it comes up is for like people feeding their children is that they're like, oh, I can just substitute these milks for my kids. And then they're not getting, they're not providing the protein, the fats, the calcium they need in other forms of the diet, because in their mind, they like gave their kids milk. And so the FDA to like, quote unquote, solve that problem, said that they have to have a like, quote on there or a thing on there that says, um, it's not nutritionally equivalent to dairy. The catch is, the new labeling recommendations are voluntary. <laughs> no. <laughs> and they literally, the quote from FDA was like, well, we think most people will probably follow along. But it's, I, it's not. They're like, they've already, there's already been ads. There's already been things out there just in the last three days that don't include that. So no, they're not going to voluntarily label themselves saying not nutritionally equivalent to dairy milk. Like that's, I, I don't know. I think that was crazy to assume people would voluntarily do that. Do you think that'll get, can get like modified or what's that word? Is it appended or upended or something like that? So I, I want to read this quote from one of the people they interviewed that was pl pro plant-based. She said she expressed disappointment with the new labeling recommendations saying they were unnecessary and potentially confusing. Like yeah. how is that confusing and how, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think what else I want to say on it. But, but I'm you're just, sure that that part's voluntary? Because I missed that part. No, that was what it said in the article. I have it as a direct okay. quote. It's voluntary. Why? What are you seeing? Well, no, I just read a quote where that the... Um, so again, there was a spokesperson saying that they thought that the new nutritional labeling recommendations might persuade some of the companies to switch to words like beverage or drink rather than have to acknowledge that their products have less protein and calcium than plain old-fashioned milk. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would agree, but I it, from everything I read, it, the, the labeling right now is voluntary. Okay, we'll have to look into that more. Um. um 
The other thing I, well, this is a tangent. Do you have anything else to add? I guess about the, do you feel like the dairy, like, uh, not to like, it's not the dairy's fault, but do you, I mean, going back to the point of like, uh, picking your which fight to choose like do you think they should have not focused on like the word milk and focused on like the labeling then or something else like do you feel like the dairy industry like I don't know not drop the ball I don't know how to phrase it it's like do you in hindsight do we wish we would have like went after this differently we went after this really I feel like we went in like really trying um I mean it's been years I would say it's been decades of us fighting this and like I would say we have used all of our manpower and gone at it from different angles like proven research that said people don't understand the nutritional differences and I just think that FDA doesn't want to enforce it because in their original laws FDA's original laws say lactating mammal is qualified as milk so what we were fighting was that they needed to enforce their existing regulations and this ruling was basically like we're not going to enforce that so are you shocked by the FDA ruling like were you do you think the dairy industry is prepared for this or they like see this coming or are they like I don't know I feel like I feel like it's kind of a combination. I feel like we've been fighting it for so long that on some level, it's kind of like, are we surprised it didn't go through after fighting it for so long? On another level, I'm disappointed because of the way I feel like people are asking for labels to be like more accurate. It's disappointing to see this. I also wonder what the implications are going to be now for like beef and chicken and all these other like fake meats that are coming out. Like I feel like dairy, this milk word was just the beginning for a lot of animal agriculture. I also think my probably one of my last things um, is I feel like if you're going to use the word milk, then you should be regulated in the same way milk is as far as like how you advertise, how like I'm, I, I always talk about that with like advertising, but just with everything, I'm like, I just don't think that they're being held to the same standards we are. So I don't know. Sometimes I just want to go like toe to toe with them. Like, let's have a debate. Let's do this. Let's go on stage. Let's do this in front of the American nation. You're going down. Like, we don't need presidential debates anymore. It's just going to yeah. be Natalie and I fighting it out up there. <laughs> we'll bring on, like, we, it, it'll be like, um, who wants to be a millionaire? Like, phone a friend. Like, I want to have some people we can, like, bring in to help <laughs> us fight in the ring. But, um, yeah, and we're going to wear a power suit. I would totally watch that TV. I don't mm-hmm. really watch that much TV anymore. I would, I would sign up for that one. I just told Luke I want to cancel our cable, and he won't let me. Oh, I would have canceled ours years ago, and Daniel won't let me. Yeah. All right, you guys. Well, today was a longer episode. So thank you so much for sticking with us um, and listening to Discover Ag, where every Thursday we cover the top three trending topics you guys need to know in the ag and food space. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to tell a friend to listen, share it to your social channels, or take a second to leave us a review in the podcasting app. And if you want more of us during the week, you can always follow us on Instagram at discoverag underscore and our personal pages at Natalie Kavoric at Tara Vanderdusen, as well as our YouTube, Discover Ag the Podcast, and now our newsletter, Discover Ag Monthly. See you next week. 